Turn in your Bible, if you will, to Luke chapter 6. This morning we're going to be taking a look at verses uh, 12 through 19 in chapter 6. I understand Keith got it started last week. And um, we're going to take a look at that. So let me, let me read it uh, to you this morning. In these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of... And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from Judah and Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So here we have, if you will, a, a, a little uh, story of a day in the life of Jesus that's got some rather amazing things as he seeks to build his team that will carry forth the gospel upon his departure, which at this point in time, He's not discussed with them. Well, let's see what has taken place. Luke, as you know, was uh, the only Gentile writer in the New Testament accounts. He was uh, by trade a physician, traveled with the Apostle Paul, which during the canonization of Scripture gave him credibility uh, for, to be, for his letters to be included. He wrote Luke, and as you well know, he wrote the book of Acts. Uh, but he, he writes in a very organized manner. As a matter of fact, he's writing to a man named Theophilus. And he's writing to give him account of all of the things that he had heard through the witnesses of the gospel. And he's putting together that account. And he says he's doing it in an orderly fashion. It's a narrative that he wants his friend to know. Now, um, so interestingly enough, the one for whom the letter was intended was one person. Isn't that interesting? And so when we read it, we're sort of reading somebody else's mail, aren't we? You know, and aren't you glad? That's, that's kind of interesting. But he writes in a, in a very sequenced, orderly fashion. And up until this point, here's, what, here's where he has carried us up to uh, chapter 6. Uh, the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist. The foretelling of Jesus' birth. The Magnificat of Mary. John the Baptist's birth, Zechariah's prophecy, which was a unique prophecy because he had an interesting experience in not believing the angel Gabriel. And what happened? Well, he lost his voice, right? Um, very, very interesting uh, consequence of that. He regained his voice after the birth of the son. Of the son. We see... Um, the birth of Christ, his presentation in the temple, Simeon's declaration. Simeon was the one who had so longed in his heart to see the coming of the Messiah. 
And uh, the Holy Spirit confirms with him that this, in fact, is the one. And he also introduces something most interesting in what he says, and that is Gentiles. So that's kind of nice because we're included, right? And, and that what's going to be coming. We see Jesus' teaching in the temple at 12 years old. We see John's preaching in the baptism of Jesus as call to repentance and the baptism, baptism of Jesus. We see the genealogy of Jesus. Now, why is that significant? Why would anybody include someone's genealogy? Well, because guess what it's got in it? Folks from your and my like, it's got some Gentiles in there. And that's, that's kind of nice, right? Particularly when you look at the character of those in the genealogy, that's even most interesting, right? And that's nice to know because uh, the gospel is all-inclusive. We see um, the temptation of Jesus. Why is that significant? Because Hebrews tells us that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses in that he was tempted in all ways as we have been tempted, yet without sin. So when you look at his temptations in the desert, you could take those, really, those three uh, specific ones and break them down into little ones and how they, shall we say, tease out in life so that the writer of Hebrews could, in fact, say that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. So that makes him closer than a brother, Hebrews tells us, because he's experienced that. You and I do not walk a path that Christ has not yet walked. And that's a tremendous encouragement to us. We see his ensuing ministry and teaching in the synagogues. We see his healing of that uh, of, of the man with the unclean spirit on the Sabbath. And that's in Luke, that's kind of the first biggie he pulls off when he does that. And it happens to be on the Sabbath. Well, already he's starting to create a little friction, isn't he? His declaration of preaching, the good news of the kingdom. And that's good news. If you ever leave church worse than when you came, guess what you didn't hear? You didn't hear good news. You heard some news that included what you had to go do instead of the blessed gift of getting to do what you want to do because of who you are in Christ. We get to participate. It's a blessed gift that we have. We see the call of his first disciples. That's the little boat experience right there. You're not having very much success in the old uh, fishing category. We see the cleaning, uh, the cleansing of a leper. Well, what do you think that indicates? Christ loves all. The unclean. The, the touching of the leper. We see healing of the uh, paralytic. And what does he do there? Boy, he's now he's really turning up the heat. He forgives sins. Whew. Well, that prompted the Pharisees and the scribes, right, to, oh, this guy's blaspheming. That they were filled with amazement at what he was doing. We see the call of Levi. Has anybody watched The Chosen? It's a delightful series. I don't know about you, but you just can really... Well, you can just link with Christ, right? I mean, it's just this personality, and that's just awesome. And, of course, Levi Matthew, right, 
He's on, I think he's what on the high autistic scale, and you know, for some that might be awesome and kind of thing. But now uh, there, um, there perhaps are some liberties taking there. But but anyway, it's the most interesting uh, relationship that Jesus has, and I love Jesus's word plays with them and things like that, which is really kind of nice. Uh, we see the the uh, at the end of five chapter five, the new wineskins went old. That just won't work. For whatever system it is, it has to be all new, right? We see his declaration as Lord of the Sabbath after their response to his boys not fasting, you know. And we see uh, the healing of the man with the withered hand on the synagogue on the Sabbath. And I think Keith probably touched on that last week when he was talking about that. So this brings us to our passage today in which Jesus chooses his apostles who would be responsible for explicating the blessings of the new covenant. Disciples fundamentally were kind of clueless until the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of interesting. You know, they're just, you know, they're just sort of walking along kind of in a, you know, daze on some level. But they came to grasp all that he was only because of the Spirit's capacity to open ears and open eyes, which is what he has to do with us, right? Which gives us that full clarity on the deity of Christ and who he is and what he's come to do. Now, before I focus on, on our passage today, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'd like to introduce a little review of last week uh, in, in Luke uh, 6. Um, uh, six through eleven, and here's why I want to do it. I, I want to put on my counseling cap a minute because this passage I want to look at is one that I use very frequently in counseling because I want to encourage you. I know it's not our passage under study this morning, but I want you to see a wonderful takeaway from it that is especially encouraging to all of us, particularly those of you that are parents. Okay, so let me read it. You take a look, beginning in verse 6. It says, On another Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Now, up to this point, he's already done that. He's getting ready to hammer it home again. But he knew their thoughts. And by the way, he's the only one that does. You don't know somebody's thoughts, even though you might think you do, right? We, we know what somebody's thinking, right? Oh, well, you really don't. But Jesus does, however. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come and stand here. And the man rose and stood there. And Jesus said to the Pharisees and scribes, or all of those around, I, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, Jesus said to the man with a withered hand, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they, i.e. the Pharisees and the scribes, were filled with fury and discussed with another what they might do to Jesus. Now, here's what I want you to say. How do you reconcile an incredibly blessed act for someone with a withered hand. We don't know how, how, how long he's had it. We just know it was a restored. Right? And respond with fury and discussion of what to do about Jesus who therefore healed him. 
Well, here's, here's the principle that I use in counseling what I want you to see, all right? It is not the facts of life, even if it's Jesus healing someone, that we respond to. It's our interpretation of them. It's not the facts of life that we respond to. It's our interpretation of them. That produces our response. And when I share that principle with people, this is the biblical example that I use to demonstrate the power of that. Right? So here's Jesus. He's healing. How do, you, how do you suppose he felt? I would suspect he's rejoicing, full of delight and joy. And yet, here are Pharisees and scribes filled with fury. Now, that's a powerful word. That's kind of a step or two above anger. And to the point they discussed doing away with him. So we see something happening. We see a response to that which is happening. But what we don't have in the narrative is what they were thinking or telling themselves about what just happened. And I'm not much of a speculator, but I bet we could put in the fill in the blanks, don't you? What they might have been thinking, how dare him? He's stealing our authority. What are we going to do about him? Right? Right? Now, here's what I want you to see. Okay? You, my dear beloved, can be Jesus to someone. And they can hate you and be angry with you. You can do everything perfectly in your life. And others be disgusted with you. Because it's not what you're doing. It's the story and the narrative they bring to themselves about what you're doing that creates the response in life. Very important. Now, parents, hear me very carefully. This is for your encouragement. You could parent your children perfectly. Perfectly. Do everything precisely right, and that does not guarantee your desired outcome for them. Jesus taught his disciples perfectly for three years, some three and a half right in there. And when he needed them the most, and I'll bet his first thought wasn't, what did I leave out? What did I forget to teach them? He taught them perfectly. So be encouraged, my dear friends, parents. By all means, be diligent. Teach them the gospel. Teach them the core values that stem from the gospel. But let not your heart be particularly troubled as if, in fact, you left out something when their choices as children, younger children, adolescents, or young adults are not as you have taught them. Because, as I said, you could do it perfectly. Right? So keep responsibility where it belongs. Now I'll take off my counselor hat. Right? Be encouraged by that. And let's take a look at our narrative. Okay. And before I get into the narrative, let, let, me, let me share some additional thoughts that's important for us when we come to reading Scripture and interpreting Scripture. Right? These, these are what we would call interpretative tools or principles. The fancy word is hermeneutics. When I, was taught, I taught my church that one time, and they said, Herman who? I went, what? You know? You know? But it's the, it's the skill of going back to the then and there. And 
understanding it in the here and now, and it's very crucial. All right? Genre in Scripture is, is very important. So we have parables. We have stories. We have psalms. Right? We have parables. We have these wonderful ways of expressing. And um, this particular passage we're looking at this morning, it's short, but it's a narrative. It's a, what we would call a historical narrative. And here's why, this is, why I want to share this with you. It's important. We have to use cautions when we read narratives about precisely how far we're going to press it to squeeze out doctrine. Right? Now, that's not to say absolutely that we can't derive doctrine from narrative because we can. But we have to be very careful. Narrative is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's informative, not directive. So our narrative this morning, we will learn some things. It will tell us some things in the, in the day and the life of Christ. Right? But we have to be careful that we don't start pressing it to the point that we've just got to get doctrine out of it. All right? Because it's not designed for that. We will learn some things. We, I think we will. All right? But that's, if we're not careful, a narrative can be fraught with opportunities to establish poor doctrine and set precedents for future practice. Reading the book of Acts, there's a lot of precedence that takes place, but it's describing something that's taken that took place, but it's not intended to therefore be always from that point. Because if you conclude that, then you're going to be confused about what necessarily establishes sound doctrine. So that's the first sort of aside I want you to know before we look at it. The second thing of equal importance is this. Jesus had two messages. He had two ministries, right? His first ministry or his first message was to bring his Jewish audience under the futility of their own law-keeping efforts. What would make you run to Jesus? You've got to cut your self-righteous legs out from underneath yourself. You've got, to en you've got to enhance what the law says to the degree that you feel smothered. And his audience was primarily Jewish. If you don't understand that, how many had a red-letter Bible growing up? Okay. Not everything in red applies to you. It might be for you, but it's not to you. We learned from it. But a lot of what Jesus said was specific. He was the greatest law preacher who ever lived. You find that on the Sermon on the Mount, and you find that on the Sermon on the, what we would call the Sermon on the Plain, kind of a derivative. Christ is elevating it so high that then when he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, that's like the final coup d'etat, right? That's like, boy, the final blow. What do I do with that? Uh, you run from it to somebody who's your refuge and who is, in fact, going to implement the new covenant in which you have all of the, the blessed benefactor of all of his blessings. Right? So you see things in the Sermon on the Mount and the, the Sermon on the Plain, and you go, wow, forgive, as we, uh, uh, forgive so that we can be forgiven? Uh, you, do you pray that? 
Oh, Lord, forgive me today as I've forgiven others. Not me. I say, Lord, remind me today how greatly I've been forgiven so that I have the wherewithal to forgive those who offend me because that's the new covenant, you see. And all these unique things. The second message of Jesus, we like this one. It's a sneak preview. It's a sneak preview of what's to come, right? So he's putting in these little snippets of what's going to be coming, right? When he leaves and the comforter comes and his, his, his apostles, you know, how do we know what? He says, I, I will teach you all truth. I will lead you in all truth. Well, how do we know what it is? Well, you, you find them in the epistles. That's the church's constitution. But he does things like um, uh, the new wine, for example. You can't put new wine in an old wineskin. It doesn't fit. You've got to have a new one. So the old has to go, abolish, boom, sh- Hebrews, right? Gone. Right? Uh, the parable of the prodigal son, really, it should be probably prodigal father. It's really a parable about the father. We see that. Oh, well, that, that'll turn heads. What do you mean the, the older brother who did everything he's supposed to do? You know. There's a little sneak preview, right? Um, the parable of the vineyard workers. Well, buddy, when you read that, what happens in you? What do you mean? I, I was there since 6 o'clock. And you're paying, it was just an hour, and he was probably drunk when he got there, and you're paying him the same thing I got. It was just a, you know, that's not fair, precisely. You may have lived a life of incredible excellence, but your reward is the same as the thief on the cross. Your reward is Jesus. Heaven's not not our reward. It's just where our reward lives. One Puritan once said, if should I get to heaven and Jesus not be there, I would leave immediately. Heaven's about Christ. He's our crown of life. He's our reward. He's our inheritance. Okay. And then there's the uh, woman caught in adultery. Well, we got a bunch of rock throwers, and then all of a sudden a mercy shower shows up. You know, we like to be rock throwers. And Jesus is a mercy shower, a grace shower. And we see this incredible dynamic. Well, that's a little sneak preview of what's coming. He doesn't say go and sin no more or else. He just says go and sin no more. Why? You don't have to do that anymore. Right? Okay. So that's, that's important for us to understand. Right? It's historical narrative. We have to be careful what we take from it. And we have to remember the message of Jesus because the Sermon on the Plain is next week probably. It follows this particular section today. So you're going to see things in there. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Wow. Yeah, so what if I, somebody offends me and I don't forgive them and I die in a plague crash? Well, I'm sorry, but you got some problems, right? So keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. What is he doing? All right, now let's just take a look at our text. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. So what do we learn? Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. He's not telling us to pray. 
The writer's not telling us to pray. The writer is certainly not telling us to pray all night. So, for example, were we to squeeze that, see, we might conclude, well, you know, Luke says Jesus went to the mountain and prayed all night, therefore we need to pray all night. I think I could hang. That's perfectly fine. I'm kind of like the disciples. I don't think I could hang, right? That's a tough thing. But we learned Jesus prayed. What does it mean? He loved his Father. He talked to him. Um, I'm almost 69 years old, and I've been a Christian since I was 15, so I don't know how many years that is, but I, I don't think I got prayer down yet. Do you? Have you got it figured all out? I, I don't. But I do know this. It is sort of more about talking to God all the time. It's, it's a pretty nice person to have to just talk to. Right? And we see other places where Christ prayed, you know, John 17, the high priestly prayer, Garden of Gethsemane. So we know it's important. But we don't want to say much more than that. We just want to say, Luke says, Jesus went to the mountain and he prayed all night. Okay? So Jesus prayed. It's not being prescribed. It's being described. All right, secondly, look at the next verses, 13 through 16. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Now, why did he choose 12? I don't know. And you don't either. You know why? It doesn't tell us. Now, some may say, well, 12 tribes of Israel. Well, you got a problem. There were 13. Right? Because Joseph's two grandsons. So take out Joseph and put in Manasseh and Ephraim. So there's 13. What do you do with that? Well, you might say, well, they got rid of one, you know, one died, and they added another one. Well, Apostle Paul was the 13th. But the reality is, we don't know. Here's what we know. He chose 12. Right? And we know that all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. Even the Apostle Paul was also learned it's not a self-declarative title. See, these, you know, apostle this and apostle that. Pardon me, but, you know, in a sense, we're all apostles. It's used over 80 times in the New Testament, most of which is the one sent or sent to send someone. But here we see it's very specific and unique as Jesus is building this team. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Prophets there, by the way, are probably New Testament prophets. But either way, the apostles are the foundation. Right? But he chose 12. Well, why did he choose Judas Iscariot knowing that he was going to betray him? I don't know and you don't either. Because it doesn't tell us why. But he did choose Judas. He chose Judas. And as we know, who would later betray him. And then, of course, Later on, right, in, in Acts, right there, pretty, pretty early in Acts, he choose, they choose Matthias. So two guys come up, right? You know how they chose him? Right? Casting lots. Any elders in here? Is that how they chose you? you know? <laughs> I'll just cast some lots. Some of them probably went, boy, oh, that was good. Man, that's awesome. Right? But the, that wouldn't have set a precedent, right, that that's how you choose elders. 
Well, you know, he cast lots for, you know, Matthias. We don't know why he chose Judas, but we know he did, and we know his story. All right, lastly, 17 through 19. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Now, all doesn't always mean all, as some would necessarily say, but I think in the context here, it means all. So what do we learn? Well, we learn that Jesus can heal. We learn as he establishes his authority with the capacity over illness and disease, the capacity to forgive sins. Uh, he's, he's taking on a very unique personality, right? As he as he's kingdom, which we learn later on as he tells Peter, it's not of this world. And it's not. It's of you. It's an internal kingdom with the reality of it manifested in our ambassadorship and the proclamation of it. But, but the beloved kingdom that we will experience on earth is yet to come. Right? So we know unclean spirits, he cured them. And he healed them. Well, well, can we take that and impress it and say, well, Jesus always heals? I think not because, beloved, that, that becomes an incredible burden that people bear because inevitably it falls back on you. The reason that you're not healed is because of your lack of faith. It's the cruelest theology on the planet. And quite honestly, it's really not even scriptural if you tease it out enough. Be very careful with that. You may have been healed, whether directly or through doctors, and thank God, and we praise God that He can do whatever He wants to do. He can heal directly or through doctors or things like that. But we can't take this and say, that's going to happen all the time. Because probably mostly it doesn't. He's with us in our suffering, in our afflictions. But we have to be very careful of what we conclude either about God or about ourselves, if in fact that healing doesn't take place. By His stripes we are healed, but the healing that takes place there is a spiritual one and an eternal one, right? And we're thankful for that. So, as we summarize, right, we have a unique text, and we just we learned from it. And the things we learned, right, Jesus prayed, so it must be really important. So we get to talk with our Heavenly Father because His Son talked to Him. Right? We know that Jesus chose 12 apostles. Why 12? We don't know. But He, know, he knew for, what, for whatever reason, out of all of the disciples, He chose 12. He chose one who would be a, bet a betrayer whom He knew would. But he chose him anyway, and that, that story played itself out in the, in the providential way that God intended. We know that he heals, and in this narrative we see him healing multitude, a lot, all that came. 
and that he has the capacity to do that. So we don't, we never surrender the idea that he can't. We're confident in him whether he does or not. Right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that uh, you talk to us and you talk to us in your word. You were gracious and kind enough to give it to us so that we wouldn't be adrift on a sea without a compass, that we would learn about you, that we would learn about us, that we would learn about this, this chasm created by an incredible poor choice. And yet we feel the weight of that choice as if, in fact, we had made it. We read about your redemption, which kicks off in Genesis 3 as the promise that the the son would crush the head of the serpent. And we, we long for and yearn for and look forward to consummation, the return of Christ, the, the, the eternal bliss of the saints resting place. We long for that. It encourages us. It helps us in times of difficulty and suffering. As the Apostle Paul said, we are set our minds on things above, not on things below. Thank you for your word. Thank you for, thank you that you abide in us for all the blessings that you've given us in Christ. Bless everyone here. May they know more, day, more and more daily the glory of Christ that their hearts may be may be tuned into that because that is what moves us forward. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.